Welcome to the Photo Pros Podcast. You'll hear insights and anecdotes on the careers and lives of world-class photographers from all genres. Let's get inspired. Here's your host, Rob Noel. Hi, I'm Rob Noel, and thanks for joining me today on the Photo Pros Podcast for our episode number five. If you're new to the podcast, thank you for giving us a try today, giving us a listen. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back, and thanks for spending your valuable time with me today. Listen, can I ask a favor? If after you listen to this episode, you found the time worth spending, would you be willing to spend another minute just leaving me a comment and a rating on iTunes? It would be so appreciated. I'd love to hear what you think, and your feedback can help drive more and better episodes. So just let me say thanks in advance for doing me that small favor. Today's guest has been and continues to be an inspiration to me as a photographer. I am so excited and honored to have on the podcast today, Howard Schatz. And if you're not familiar with that name, I'm going to spell it. It's S-C-H-A-T-Z or Z, depending where you're from. And can I just suggest today that if you're not familiar with Howard Schatz, that you consider pausing the podcast right now, if you're listening on a laptop or a phone, where you could just go and check out his website first. I think it would help put everything that we talk about today in a better context if you actually saw and we're a little more familiar with his photography first. Now, if you're driving, obviously not. If you're working out in a gym, maybe not. But um, if you're able to, please go and check out his work on his website. Not that you can only spend a few short minutes on his website, since there is just so much gorgeous photography to look at and absorb. His portfolio is so incredibly diverse, and Howard has published an incredible 22 books in a 25-year career as a professional photographer. That is sort of astounding when you think of it. At the time of our conversation, Howard is 79 years young and has all the energy, passion, and enthusiasm of a photographer just starting their journey. And speaking of journey, perhaps Howard would best be described as being an explorer, an explorer maybe than just say photographer. He's constantly working on new and continuing projects that challenge him creatively and technically, and I think that's something we should all be doing as photographers. We can certainly learn that from him. Howard's awards from the last 25 years are so many. I just suggest you look them up as opposed to me listing them off here. There just literally are too many to list. Same goes for his exhibits. His work has been hung on the walls of some of the most prestigious galleries worldwide. Again, I think it's such an extensive list. It's too long for me to recount here. Um, so I'm pretty sure that you would rather we just get right into the episode. So if you do enjoy our conversation today, please treat yourself to one of his many books. They're available online, or at the very least, if you haven't done so, peruse all the galleries of his website, take in the vast work of this incredibly gifted creative, Howard Schatz. Let's join that conversation now. Today, I am honored to have with me photographer and artist Howard Schatz from New York, Welcome to the Photo Pros Podcast, Howard. Thanks so much, Rob. I appreciate it very much. I'm just so glad to have you here today. Howard, I want to admit to you that while I was preparing for our conversation today and poring over your body of work, um, I actually found it to be a little overwhelming. The, the diversity, the scope, and breadth of your portfolio I found to be absolutely incredible. You've published around 22 books by my count, um, and, and that's almost a, a book a year, 
based on how long you've been doing photography as a second career. I have to ask, how do you manage to publish books while maintaining the busy shoot schedule you obviously have had? Um, well, that's a good question. Um, actually, a book sometimes ends a project. So the idea of having a book published is not such a happiness. Sometimes I'll be working on a project for a year or two or three or four. My wife, Beverly, uh, will say, you know, you've got more than enough work here for a book, and this would be very original, unique, and et cetera, et cetera. And my response is usually, no, 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 no. I don't want to stop. I'm key. I, I have so much more to explore, to discover. To So sometimes books are done, they're taken away from me. And mm. uh, it's not necessarily such a great thing. Yes, it is nice. It's uh, A book is a great calling card. It's brought us work. It's brought us museum and gallery uh, exhibitions. It's brought us some imprimatur and cachet, admittedly, but it's not what you absolutely think is the most end-all wonderful thing in the world, because mm. sometimes it's the end of a project. So, and how do I manage? Mostly I produce the work. My, my, I'm, I'm in, I have an insatiable curiosity. I have a thought about what would this look like if and that's what generates my shoots during uh, for a day, for a week, for a month. What would this look like if I did this? What would what would happen if we try this? What would what would what would? And I try those things, and there's a lot of uh, failure. You know, there's uh, trial and error. You try stuff, and you know, that's not. You have to have a very good um, sense for yourself of what is not working. You have to try to be really honest with yourself. Would I want to s study this if another photographer did it? Look at these pictures. Are these something I would stop short on and, and really look and study, or would I just turn the page real quickly? And the second important thing in production of work that you want to show the world is the, this following fact. Everybody needs an editor. Mm -hmm. We all have egos. We're all biased toward ourselves. It's normal. Some element of narcissism is an important component of being a human being. And that masks, camouflages, hides, muddies up one's ability to judge one's work for oneself. It's important to have an editor who loves you enough that they will be honest. Your friends are not your editors. You show your work to your friends, and your friends will all say, oh, great, terrific, man, you're so creative, blah, blah, blah. It means nothing. Applause from uh, non-serious anybody's mm. doesn't mean anything in a career. What you really need is somebody who really is paying attention and really has a great eye and is really an experienced photo editor and can tell you honestly, well, it's well done, but I don't see anything here that stands out. You need somebody like that. So are uh, you saying that most photographers, 
it would be almost impossible to properly edit their work because object objectivity doesn't work well with emotional attachment. Yeah, I think that's well put. I think it's not totally impossible. I think one can be honest with oneself. I think one can pick out what really works, but everybody needs an editor that loves them enough that they'll be honest. And that turns out I'm married to a woman who is, um, is extremely smart, smarter than me in many ways, and has had a 20-plus year career in television production, PBS, documentary television. She knows when an image has an impact and when it doesn't. And she doesn't need to uh, pat me on the back and compliment me. You know, we love each other and care about each other. And she knows, just to be honest, I could do a shoot, for example. I'll shoot all day on something. And I'll make, I don't know, 200, 300, 400, 500 images. And I'll spend a week or two or three or four editing and I'll come up with what I think are two, three, four really strong images. Mm -hmm. And then I'll say, Beverly, will you come take a look at this? And she'll look at the images I select. And then the worst thing happens. She'll say, can I see the others? <laughs> <laughs> so she will take the time and go through everything. Yeah. And she'll say, there'll be times, and this has happened not infrequently, where she'll say, well-resolved, well-lit, well-composed, uh, thoughtful, but it's sort of so what? I don't see anything here that's so particularly unique, magnificent, fantastic, unusual, special. Uh, hmm. And so you need that. You got to do that. And so that just drives me to further hmm. look, to further look, to further hmm. and dig further and explore further and experiment further and fall on my face and trip over myself. It's, I, guess you uh, need, I guess you need thick skin um, for this business that way then. Well, I, 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 maybe I do. Mm -hmm. I got to think about this. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if somebody makes a snide remark or yeah. something like that, it, it'll get a little bit inside me, but I can handle it. I'm an adult enough and mature enough that, you know, I, I can handle most things, but it doesn't mean I, I don't hear yeah. criticism, you know, so. Okay. So your photography career is now at around the 25 year mark based on when you sort of moved to New York. I think that was 1995. If That's right. October 95. And prior to that, you had an entirely different and highly successful career in ophthalmology as a retinal specialist. And, yeah. and I know you've probably been asked this a lot of times, but I'd love for our viewers to get a sense of how this all came down. Like you were around 54 when you decided to make a go of photography um, and move from San Francisco to New York. Did anybody tell you you were crazy to do this? Yeah, everybody, like, everybody. Yeah. Can you describe um, how you made this transition from one career to the other? Well, you know, there are a lot of details. We'll start with, I had a parent who was determined that her two sons would become physicians. My brother and I both became physicians, and we understood that from the time we could understand language. We were programmed. Hmm. We were uh, designed to become physicians. I didn't have it. I probably had a choice, but 
there was no choice. I was going to become a physician. I'm, but I had this other part of me, this creative part of me, and I did creative things all the time. I mean, even in my fraternity in, in college, I wrote the music to some of the, the musical we put on. I helped write a play hmm. in uh, medical school. I organized various things. I, I, I've always had this creative thing inside. And um, when my, I have two daughters, when my second daughter, Jessica, graduated from high school in 1987, and I didn't have to be a daddy and paying attention and around all the time, I decided I was going to give one day of my life a week, one day a week of my life to photography. It's something I had carried a camera from the time I was in medical school. I had a, a camera from the time I was in medical school. I was taking pictures all the time. So I devoted Saturdays in 1987 to photography, and I devoted it in many ways. I studied. I bought any book in which there was one idea that was unique to me. I went to galleries and museums. I attended lectures when I could. And I set up a dining room in Cow Hollow in San Francisco, a large dining room to be a studio. Mm. And I learned everything myself, lighting, cameras. I did all the set. I didn't had no assistance. I remember one day I'm shooting a model and I had five, six lights up. And it was like a dominoes, deck of cards where <laughs> one light fell on another and another and another. And everything went down and this dear model stood there and just looked. Never lend a hand to stop the <laughs> destruction. <laughs> but anyway, between 87 and 95, I had a lot of attention for my work. Um, there were four or five books published. I got, there were gallery shows. I did a project on homelessness that got into 18 museums, one museum after another over a few years. Um, all over the country. And so here I was, uh, a successful retina specialist. I was a teacher. I was a clinical professor uh, of ophthalmology at the University of California, San Francisco Medical Center in the Department of Ophthalmology. I lectured all over the world. I did clinical research and wrote scientific papers. I had a very busy important practice in retina where I was sort of the go-to guy for rare diseases. What is it? And Beverly, who says she always wanted to be married to an artist, not a successful physician, <laughs> said, why don't we, why don't we take, why don't you take a year sabbatical and we'll go to New York for a year, just one year. And we'll see what you can do if we do it full time. And I've always wanted to run a business and I'll run the business. And frankly, those first eight years, 87 and 95, the books, the museum shows, the exhibitions um, were all due to Beverly. Beverly got the work out. I even had commercial work. I did some commercial work, but very frequently we would get a call and I couldn't do it. I was seeing patients. I was giving a lecture. I was working on something. I couldn't do it. It frustrated her. So how confident were you with this idea going 
going into New York? Well, I didn't want to do it. I said, what? Take a year off. I was at the top of my field. I was at a place where I was winning awards, uh, named awards, named lectures all over the world in, uh, in my field. I was doing very well. I loved my patients. I loved my work. I loved my, the people I work with. I had a lot of great colleagues all over the world and the country, made great friends. It was a happy existence, very happy. And I was mm. financially secure. And I said, what? You know, what, what, what? But she convinced me, what, what's a year? I went to all the people I was involved with um, about going away. And they said, what do you want? I said, all I want is for the door to be open in a year. I want to walk right back in. Mm. I said, I'll keep up. I had a good friend in New York City, Larry Anuzzi, and I, attend, I decided I'll attend all his conferences. I'll stay involved. I'll read the literature. I'll, I'll, I'll keep up during the year. And so Beverly went to New York that summer of 80, 95, found a 5,000-square-foot studio in Soho, right on the corner of Prince and West Broadway on the second floor, Wow. The studio of a very famous artist, Al Held, who wanted to rent it out because he was painting in Italy. And uh, we moved in uh, October 95. That's and, a big commitment. Uh, it, well, <laughs> I felt 5,000 like square feet. That's a big commitment. Well, it was, a, yeah, it was expensive, but uh, I felt for a year I could handle it for a year. Yeah. We had enough money. I could handle it for a year. Mm-hmm. And it was scary. It was, nobody knew us. Nobody knew who I was in the advertising world and magazine world, or very few people. So how did you get, how did you start getting attention? Like, how, how did you initially get work? What kind of work were you trying to attract? How did that work for you? Well, the answer is simple. You ready? Yeah. Books. We bought, whenever I published a book, we would buy at 10% plus cost, 500 books, and we would send them to all of the museums, all of the galleries, and all of the art directors and art buyers of the important agencies. That's brilliant. Doing advertising and to the photo editors and magazine editors of all the important magazines. Well, all you have to do when you throw darts, if you throw darts from 10 (laughs) feet away, yeah. You sort of know where the dartboard is. You can put a, a, a blindfold over your eyes and throw the darts. And if you throw enough darts, you'll hit a bullseye. Right. And so there were bullseyes. People saw the work and hired us. And I got busy right away. After one year, when I was ready to return, we were busy. We went to bed giggling. We were happy. We... Uh, it, we made friends. We met people. It was a different world from medicine, totally different. Hmm. And we decided, tried another year. So I wrote back, called all my associates. I said, I want another year, and I want to be able to come back. And they said, okay. And we kept re-upping this sabbatical for five years when it was clear in around 2000 I wasn't going to return to medicine. Wow. So you've, you've brought up Beverly already and, and mentioned her. And I, I think it's fitting that we 
find out a little bit more about her and her role in your career. Her, her name is very prominent in your business, and that's not typical. I've certainly seen other photographers whose spouses are involved, but yours gets a lot of credit in your business. Um, how, how has her role evolved, and how... Well, it's very, that's a, you know, I would never do this if it weren't for her. I'd be mm. a physician. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is her. I work for Beverly. Well, she gets to say, I told you so, right? Well, she would never. <laughs> my wife is, uh, my wife would, my wife is balanced, yep. generous, kind, forgiving, understanding, happy, loving. She would never ever say anything that w- where she felt she won or would make me feel bad. Never. We have a, 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 a modus vivendi that's uh, enviable. Yeah, um, sounds it. So I essentially work for Beverly. I don't do any business. I make pictures. And um, if we get a call from an advertising company, I don't take the call. Beverly takes the call. She finds out what it's about. Yep. She works through it. She comes, asks me, they want this. How would you do it? What What do we need to put in our budget for you to do this? And I say, well, well this is what we need. We need, we need, we need. What, whatever it is, assistance, studios, equipment, whatever it needs. She figures it out and she writes a budget and does the budget and does the negotiation. And it's all done through her. The galleries, the same thing. She arranges... You know, um, she arranges for the fine art uh, archive image to be printed. I'll approve of the print. You know, I'll talk to the printer about what I'll say. I have a perfect sample print. Just copy it exactly. And and nowadays things are, it's incredible how you get things so close to exact when you Mm. print. Um, she does the same with museums. She arranges um, everything. So, mm. uh, we, we, in fact, we had somebody come to us that there's now a computer program where um, you could put your all your images, very low-res images on, and they could find who's stealing your images mm. worldwide. So right. we signed up with an agency. Uh, Beverly submitted something like 10, 20, 30,000 of my images to this agency. And they've uh, explored the world for theft of my images. And there's a lot. Wow. And and then they go after these people. Beverly has a copyright on every single image I've done. She's able to pull out the copyright. When they want to come sue them or ask for a certain amount of money, she has a record of how the image is sold in the past, either to uh, galleries or for advertising. So she has a financial record of what a uh, piece of art is worth. And she's created, there's a business going on where we get a check every month for people who are stealing our work. Um, So she does everything. Really, I just make the pictures and um, ask her, is there anything here? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. It sounds like a, a perfect relationship to have. Yeah. And now, you know, it's the Schatz Ornstein studio. She let me 
she let it be the Schatz Ornstein studio, but it's really the Ornstein business with <laughs> Schatz as the photographer working for her. Right. So that's, that's awesome. Howard, tell me, how has your former medical career been beneficial to you as a photographer, if at all? <clears throat> well, in many ways, in many, many ways. First of all, let's talk about the differences. Um, in medicine, it's very important that the doctor who takes care of the patient gets it right. One, he has to be as well informed about what is known in the world's literature on a, on a particular subject as anybody. Mm -hmm. He has to be a scholar of his field. And he has to know all the studies that have been done that are important. And he has to know what study, what tests to do, what questions to ask, and what the right treatment is. What is exactly the right treatment? It's not, let's try this, let's try that. If that doesn't work, then let's try it. It's not trial and error. It's about getting it exactly, perfectly, obsessively, compulsively correct. That's mm. what medicine ought to be. Yep. Uh, yes, the doctor has to be gentle and caring and empathic and loving and understanding. But in terms of dealing with a disease and an illness, he has to know what's exactly right, what the side effects are, what the unintended consequences might be. He's got to know those things. In art, it's really a trial and error and an exploration into unknown. You could have an idea, but almost always the idea will make a turn, another, another turn, and a dip, and an elevation, and a this and a that. And what's the worst thing that happens when you make pictures? The picture mm. stinks. That's not right. like losing an eye or losing a life. Right. or having a permanently negative effect on somebody's life. It's just pictures. So my way of being has changed. Mm. I went from a fellow who wore a, a sport coat and a white shirt and a bow tie and was neat and perfect and exacting all the time to someone who is much more relaxed and open and easy and let's try this and let's try that and willing to experiment and willing to make mistakes. So it is big difference between medicine and art it, sure. it, in, in that way. And it has changed me as a person. Now, how has medicine helped? Well, I was a physics minor in college. So that really helped me learn photography, learn optics and light and all sorts of the things in the physical world. A lot of advertising photography is solving physical problems. Mm. Two, I learned every patient that I saw was in trouble. Every patient was referred to me with a retina problem that was potentially blinding. That was my existence as a physician. I learned to walk into a room, introduce myself, and behave in such a way that the patient within 30 seconds or a minute would take a deep breath and feel they were in the right place. Mm. So having the ability to relate, empathize, sympathize, care about, and 
express that, communicate that to a stranger is very helpful in portrait photography. Hmm. Um, I know, you know, I photographed all kinds of people, famous people, athletes who are narcissistic and used to being, you know, treated like kings and uh, little kids and models and all. I know how to behave. I know how to be. Hmm. I know how to produce an environment in my studio so that when whoever I've worked with and photographed, and whether it was a short time or all day long, they would walk out and want to hug me and feel this was a great experience, how much fun they had, how much they appreciate it. And although that's not happened 100% of the time, it's pretty close. Mm. I know how to work with people. And so medicine has really helped me. The second thing, second way medicine has helped me is my ability to analyze. We take notes on everything. I write everything. Every shoot I've ever done, there are notes. There are notes exactly what light, what power, what distance, what height, uh, what filters, what film, what everything. And so I have a methodology of evaluation so that I can... If I want to change something, I know how to change one variable at a time in order to judge its effect on an image. Let's try this. You don't want to say, let's try this, 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 and then you get a change. You don't know which one of those things created the change. You you work via one variable at a time, and then you can judge what the change is and rate and quantitate what that change is. So medicine has taught me that, you know, I was a scientist. So I understand how to evaluate things on a scientific level. And I would say that would be the answer to your question. That's a great answer. You published a book, one of your many books, called At the Fights. After immersing yourself into the world of boxing for about six years. And I'm wondering, were you a fan of boxing prior to this project? Yeah, no, I wasn't. You know, as a physician... I always felt boxing was terrible. Yeah. I mean, uh, people are getting punched in the head, and the brain is not meant to be rocked around like that. And every time somebody gets hit, there are multiple microscopic bleeds. There's uh, traumatic encephalopathy. uh, And I've talked to many old boxers, and I can see their brains are gone. It was sort of terrible. So what, what drew you? Go ahead. What drew you? Oh, I was just going to say, like, if that's the case, and it does seem like it's incongruous for a doctor to see art in boxing. So, I mean, the question is, what, like, what drew you to want to photograph boxers at all? I was interested in uh, something that I don't have, uh, which was their courage. Uh, these guys, remember Kelly Pavlik, he was hit in the, He was eight years old, and some 10-year-old kid punched him in the nose, and his nose bled, and he tasted the blood running down his nose into his mouth, and it enraged him, excited him, energized him, and he went after that kid. These boxers have courage. Many of them have to get hit the first round, second round, third round in order for them to perform at their best. This idea of courage beyond one's well-being is something that fascinated me. It was fascinating. I did a project on athletes um, 
It's called athlete. I photographed athletes in every sport, every Olympic sport, track and field, swimming, gymnastics, judo, even um, everything you can you can think of in all the professional sports, basketball, baseball, hockey, volleyball, etc. And of course, uh, there were the boxing was involved and I got to talk to each athlete and what it was like and what their life was like and what training was like and what performance was like and what failure was like. And the boxers, I could tell, and similar to wrestlers, actually, the boxers were different. They were different sort of species. And that fascinated me. I'm extremely curious about the human condition. One reason I've done a number of my projects, the newborn, the uh, with child, growing up, as I'm so curious about people and how they develop and change and what they're like. And so this particular aspect of the human condition, this aspect of courage under the atmosphere vapor of adversity is something, if somebody threatened me or hit me or bumped me, I would get mm -hmm. away from that person as fast as I possibly couldn't. I, I wouldn't stand my ground and clench my fists. And so that's what, where my curiosity lies. And so when okay. I started the project, I, I got more and more interested. I was sucked in by it. And even though in the back of my mind, this brain damaging stuff was happening. And I spoke to ringside physicians. I made a lot of friends of ringside physicians. I, I shot for Sports Illustrated from ringside everywhere, not only at Madison Square Garden and Atlantic City, but, you know, in Las Vegas and everywhere. And mm -hmm. I spoke to ringside physicians and I spoke to them about this and learned about this. But still, I found the, my quest in learning about this, uh, insatiably interesting. And that's why I did the project. The yes, other thing about doing a project that might help some of your listeners is I went to everybody I could who was involved in boxing, who was not a boxer. And mm -hmm. I told them, I'd like you to come in. I'd like to do an interview to learn about boxing and I'll do a portrait. I'll make a portrait for you. And then, you know, I made an attachment and then I could ask them for help. And so I photographed referees and judges and commissioners and inspectors and announcers and managers and promoters and writers and everybody who was involved in boxing. I had them come to the studio and they helped me. But I'll tell you where I started. I started with the head of orthopedic surgery at NYU, who is a friend of mine. I'm a physician. I know how to make friends of physicians. If you are a physician, you can make a friend of a physician. It's very simple. Hmm. And so I asked him, I asked Joe Zuckerman, head of orthopedics at NYU, who on your staff is involved in boxing? I know there's hands, hands get smashed up. There's shoulders, there's knees, there's backs. They get all kinds of injuries, not only the brain damage. And he said, well, Rusty Vallada, an orthopedics on our staff, is a ringside physician. 
So he connected me with Rusty. And Rusty and I became friends in two seconds. He said, this Friday, I'm going down to Madison Square Garden to assess a series of boxers. I'll introduce you to Ron Scott Stevens, the head of New York State Athletic Commission, who's the head of boxing. I'll introduce you to Barry Jordan, the chief uh, physician, ringside physician for all of the state of New York. I'll introduce you to Bob Arum, the chief promoter from Las Vegas. I'll introduce, so he introduced me to everybody and I made all these connections and all these connections led to the boxers. And I was able to get virtually every champion currently in the world at the time. And it sounds like your credibility with those boxers would be high because you've done so much prep research background. Uh, So you kind of knew what you were talking about with them. Well, I did, but I also had all these guys promoting me. Yeah. You know, they had my back. Barlotta would tell this guy, this, you, he's serious, he's a great photographer, he's serious, this is serious. You've got to be in this book. Yeah. I became friends with Jim Lampley, talked to boxers, he, you've got to be in this book. You shouldn't be left out of this book. Hmm. To Larry Merchant, the great announcer, to Max Kellerman, the great announcer, to um, Lou DiBella, one of the great promoters. So uh, they were all, they all had my back. They helped me. Amazing. And, and it was, um, I'm working now on a project called The Shape of the NFL. Hmm. I'm very interested in how the body type dictates the position the player plays. Hmm. You understand that, right? I do, yeah. Absolutely. Offensive linemen are big 300, 350 pound walls yep. that produce holes for running backs or protects quarterbacks. So I found it's very hard to get the football players. They're all multimillionaires, and what do they want to do anything for free for? So I've opened the project up to the the important agents and get them to the studio, take their portrait, make a connection, and they bring me their boxers. So that's helped a lot, this project. The The sad thing, my only sadness in my life, is March 9th, I made a photograph of a, a great defensive uh, back in the NFL and then had to close the studio. Hmm. I had 10 NFL players lined up. I'm working on a dance project. I had 15 dancers lined up. Hmm. I'm working on this uh, growing up project. I have 20, 30, 40 kids all in their 20s ready to come back for their last shoot, all lined up. And we got slammed by this microbial menace COVID-19, and it's my sadness that I cannot make new images. And I've got these projects going for which I feel a tremendous emotional yearning and desire to explore, further experiment, discover. Hmm. Well, looking through your work and certainly, you know, the work with the boxers there, you have an obvious appreciation for the human form. Um, why does the body, why does the human body fascinate you so? I don't know. I'm not, you know, I'm, that's, that's a important question. And I think it's probably some sort of deep psychoanalytic, uh, <laughs> complicated bits of reasoning. I don't know. I remember my first day in anatomy as a medical student in 1961, September, 1961, 
we had uh, a cadaver, a uh, probably a 30-year-old man who was in the tank. They lay them in formaldehyde, and you crank them up out of the formaldehyde uh, with his, uh, on his face down, prone. And our first, our first assignment was to cut the skin of the back open, peel it back, and look for the rhomboid major and minor muscles. That was fascinating to me. It was spectacular. It was amazing. And um, I've had this fascination with the body, at least from then on, and probably way before that. Hmm. You seem to have a special affinity with dancers. Um, and I've, I've heard you say that there's a difference between photographing a dancer who's just dancing in front of you as opposed to directing and collaborating for specifically photography, like to create something with that dancer. Is that true? Yeah. Can you elaborate on that idea? Well, I can elaborate a lot on dance. That would be interesting for your listeners, I believe. Number one, dancers can do everything physically. A shot putter can only shot put. A hurdler can run and jump. A wrestler can only grapple. Basketball players come close. They can jump, they can run, they can twist, but it's limited. A dancer can do anything, anything you can imagine that the body can do, short of gymnastics, judo stuff, but even many of dancers can do those. Number two, dancers take direction. If a dancer can't take direction, if they get uppity about or takes a direction personally, they don't become a dancer. And dancers start when they're four or five. So they're really programmed to listen and take direction and do exactly what's told. And so dancers are clay to me. I can imagine something and I can say, let's try this. And the dancer will try it. They'll never say to me, no, I won't do it. Or it, It's the most wonderful thing working with dancers. And then, of course, the best dancers make the best pictures. You can have a dancer that's really good, and all you're going to get is a really good picture. Mm. You want the best dancers in the world if you want to make the best pictures in the world. So I'm very interested in dance. The second thing is dancers, when they dance, have to have a certain lightness and relaxation. If you take a picture of relaxation, it dies energetically. It doesn't look so good. It's a frozen image of somebody relaxed, even if they're twisting around. In order to make a dance dancer look alive, they have to sort of really pump it up. I've said this before. Dance is movement, depth, and sound. A photograph is still, flat, and quiet. In order to compete, in order for a photograph to compete with dance, you need the photograph to bounce off the page. You need it to be explosive. And so a dancer can't dance explosively constantly. You have to sort of discover what they can do, have them help you, show you what they can do, and then try to make that into a picture versus into dance. Hmm. So 
it, it's a challenge. Anybody can go sit in the fourth row at a rehearsal and take pictures of dancers dancing and make pretty pictures, but that's all they are. They're pretty. Mm-hmm. They're nice. The dancer's done well. They pirouette. They turn. They jump. They leap. They're very nice. But how do you make a picture that explosive screams explosion? It's hard. And you you got to get the dancer to understand what that means. Sounds like you don't, you're not necessarily going to get it every time. Oh yeah. You could do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over until you get that one shot. That's wonderful thing about iPad. You know, I, I have, I photograph, but I can't get the dancer to come off the stage and come see the screen. I can walk up to the dancer with my iPad and show them what they just did. And I said, you know, if this arm were here, if that leg were there, if you turned your head that, you know, you mm. can't say too many things. Usually try just to adjust one thing at a time. But they do have a memory for what they've done. You could say to a dancer, you, know, you lift that right arm mm. another three inches and then put some energy down into your fingertips. That'll make the difference in this picture. And they get it. And then you, you'll say, well, that's close. Look what you did. And they'll go, aha. I'll say, there's more of that. More, you know. So you can sort of mold mold things that way and direct things. You've got to have sort of an eye for it. I think it's very important for all people in visual imagery, all artists, and especially all photographers, to have a vast visual data bank. You've got to mm. know what's come before. You've got to know what other people have made. You've got to look at everything you can look at so that when you look through the camera, you know, ah, it's been done before. What can I do to make it different, to put my name on it, to make it stand out as something unique? So it's very important for anybody in our field to be looking at the work of others. And the most wonderful thing is the internet. You can go on anybody's website and see what they're doing. And I do. I say every single day I'm looking at one or 10 photographers at their work. And I'll often do screenshots of things I feel are ideas, are things they've done that are great ideas and that if I could carry it further, do something different with it, what might be worthwhile. And so I have a file. It's a very simple thing. Screenshots are very, you know, don't take much res at all. And I have a file of a hundred categories when I push my screenshots in the you know, portraiture, landscape, water, uh, air, everything, anything you can think of, flowers, anything, mm-hmm. frogs, anything. I have th- tens of thousands of images that other people have done that I can refer to for my own visual fertilization. I want to just deviate a little bit, just momentarily from the direction we've been talking, which is the creative process and everything else, I do want to just touch on some technical things. Um, I I generally don't try to get too big into gear in these kinds of podcasts, but on your website, um, you've got a category marked installations of your work hanging on some of the most prestigious walls around (laughs) New York, inside, outside, and some of the images um, are mammoth in size. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the tools you use, what formats you use, and how you decide what format to shoot. Well, like if, if, you, if you know that there's a chance or a possibility of a picture being on the side of a building or being, you know, 30 feet wide, 
I mean, does, does that come into play when you're choosing the camera you're going to use for a, for a shoot? Well, well first of all, um, I urge you to go, I've written five on seeing journals, blogs on installation. Okay. And I urge you to go back and look at the first one or two. Okay. The installations are a artistic fiction. Ah. They're a fantasy. Okay. And I don't want to fool anybody that I that those pictures are on the in, on the walls of the Museum of Modern Art. Those are my every artist wants to have a show at the Museum of Modern Art. Every artist wants to have his picture up at Times Square. Every right. artist wants to have a show at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and every other museum at the Whitney and everywhere. Okay. So I photograph walls, spaces, places where I would want my pictures to be. Uh-huh. And I have a file called installations. Yep. I have places and I have the pictures I want to place. And then I put the pictures in in Photoshop. So I could have a hundred foot high picture you know, in a scene that was taken with a 35 millimeter camera. <laughs> okay. That makes sense. Okay. I gotcha. It, they're just pure desire and it's, it's more fun than anything in particular. And it certainly um, is. the uncomfortable thing is I'll have a few friends. I've had over time friends write me, God, you got a show at MoMA. This is fantastic. <laughs> and I have to write and explain. I'm not trying to fool anybody. I've explained what this is about. Yes. These are my this, these are installations I've made in Photoshop. Okay. So uh, with that in mind, uh, thanks for clarifying that. Um, what what do you use to shoot? Do you go uh, medium format, large format, I'll tell DSLR? You exactly. I'll tell you exactly. I I use. Uh, uh, I hate saying the camera because I'm promoting the camera and they don't give me anything. Right. <laughs> but I use a Hasselblad a digital camera for all studio work. Okay. And it gives me plenty of res to do just about anything. Mm-hmm. And I walk around with a Canon camera. I think it's Mark IV, uh, uh, 5D Mark IV. 5D Mark IV. Yep. Yeah. And I like that camera a lot. I have a, a zoom lens on it that I use, but I also love uh, their two wide-angle lenses. One is fisheye and one is an almost fisheye. Right. And I'm making, uh, at least until this this uh, COVID thing, I've been ma- I make I carry camera all the time and take pictures all the time. So is that is the DSLR your choice in the underwater work? Because that has to go in a housing, yes, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Canon goes into a, a a housing. Okay, so I I want to go there because that to me is probably how I first got to know you. I remember seeing one of your beautiful one underwater images, and I'm pretty sure it was on the cover of a photography magazine, and that was my introduction some years ago to Howard Chats. And huh. I remember going, "Oh my God, these like I I'm not a strong swimmer myself, so I'm trying to imagine trying to be in a pool photographing and coming out with results like this." Um, but how did this idea come about in the first place for you? Like, how did, how did you get this idea to photograph models underwater? Here's the story. Um, about the same time that my daughter, Jessica graduated 1987, Beverly and I married. And I think that's as much a reason I became a photographer as anything. I think a good marriage 
is really a beneficial thing, more to a man than a woman, perhaps. But it's having a good marriage has potentiated anything inside me. Um, so anyway, we bought a piece of land in Marin. We li- we're living in San Francisco in Cow Hollow, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. which is on the north slope of Pacific Heights, overlooking the bay and the San Francisco uh, Golden Gate Bridge and Marin County. But we bought a piece of land in Marin County in Fairfax. And um, I've always been athletically interested. I'm not a great athlete. I'm an average athlete. But I've always loved sports. And I wanted to find a sport that I could do with two knees that had been operated on for cartilage and which were just croaking awful. So I decided, how about in this new house, build us a indoor swimming pool. And over the deep end, I'll put an NBA glass backboard at the correct height. I stood under a basket. You know, when you, when you tread water, your shoulder, you're at your shoulders, right? Right. Okay. Your head is out of the water, but your shoulders are right at the level of the water. So I stood under a basket and measured my shoulders to the rim of a basket. It was five feet. So we placed the rim of this uh, NBA glass backboard over the deep end of the pool, five feet off the water. So then I could, I said, I can exercise. I don't want to do laps, but I could shoot baskets from the deep water. Treading water in itself is exercise. Hmm. I can shoot baskets. Mm-hmm. That would be great exercise. That was my fantasy. Well, when the ball comes careening off the backboard or the rim, it doesn't drop through the net, and splashes in the water in front of you, it hits your eyes. It's like a foreign body. It hurts. Yep. So, so what's the solution? Goggles. So I put on goggles. <laughs> And then I saw what was going on underwater. I, friends would come over and we would play horse, you know, in the pool, shoot, yeah. you know. And, but I, I would go underwater and I could see what was happening underwater. And I said, Jesus, the human body is weightless underwater. Yeah, they're a little buoyant, but if they blow some air out, they're, they're sort of even with the water. This is, this, is, this is perfect for dance. If a dancer could perform in a weightless environment, that would be magic. So that's how that started. So then what I did was I started to learn how to take pictures underwater. And everybody knew everything about fish and fauna in the ocean, but nobody knew how to take pictures in a pool Hmm. at that time. No one. I had to figure out water clarity and filtration, water chemistry, so that it was uh, consistent with the pH of the eyes and didn't burn the eyes. Lighting. You couldn't put big strobe lights next to the water. You drop it, drop them in, and you become electrocuted. Um, I had a color. Water it, it sucks out red and yellow and changes everything to cyan. C- composition at the time, these uh, little Nikonis cameras were rangefinders cameras and were off-center. You c- couldn't really compose. Focus, you had a guess. So I had to figure all of this stuff out by myself. And every Saturday, once we had the house built, 1992, I would spend Saturdays in the pool working out all of these details. And I figured it out. It took me six months, but I figured it out. 
I figured out how to light safely, mm-hmm. how to color, how to get the pool clear, what the chemistry should be. And I learned a few other things afterwards. Um, it turns out that a water temperature with most pools are 82, 84. Mm. Uh, a dancer who has no body fat becomes hypothermic and shivering in 10 minutes. So I learned hmm. skin temperature is about 90. The pool's got to be about 90. 92 is better. So I raised the temperature in the pool. So I called Katita Waldo. Katita Waldo was a prima ballerina in the San Francisco Ballet. She's on the redhead. She's on the cover of my Redheads book. Yep. And we became friends. She did a lot of work with me in the studio dance. And I called her. And I said, Katita, she lived in San Francisco. We were up in Fairfax. Can you swim? She says, yeah. I said, well, I've been working. And I told her and explained it. Could you come by the pool? We'll see what can happen. She said, love to. Hmm. And there it was. It was like it was like all the right music and all the right tastes and all the right everything came together in that first shoot where she was underwater. She knew how to blow out enough air that she could sink, yet control herself without going down to the bottom of the water and perform hmm. as a ballerina. And that's how my project Water Dance came about. How excited were you at that first shoot? Did you know out you were onto mind. something big? Out of, out of my mind. I, yeah. I came out of the pool. I said, you can't but like yell, Beverly, you've got to see this. You got to, you know, it was fantastic. Yeah. And one of the first, the, one of the first pictures I ever made is Katita with an orange chiffon covering her body. Yeah. I think it's underwater number it's, 101 or something. Yeah. Like that. It's breathtaking. Yeah. So that yeah. was my first picture. And, and it was like that. I learned about all these things. I learned, I know all about pool chemistry, you know, before we do a shoot, I get all the chlorine out of it. You need chlorine yeah. because you get growth of, of, of things in the water that clouds it up. So you need chlorine. But chlorine burns the eyes. Yeah. But I, I learned how to chemically vaporize the chlorine for a day, and it was safe. So I shoot with no chlorine in the water, and when okay. the shoot is over, I replace the chlorine, and we're okay. As someone who teaches uh, light and color theory at college, I'm particularly fascinated about the color issues. Do you mind sharing the recipe uh, of how you solved that? Was it simple? Through... Simple. Simple. Okay. Yeah, they're two two completely different worlds. Okay. Yep. So I was shooting film in 1992, right? Yes. And it turns out they made for reconnaissance an infrared film. Okay. They made an infrared, Kodak made an infrared film. Right. No one ever used it. Right. But what it did was remove all of the cyan. And so skin tones were normal. I Uh, bought the world supply. No kidding. They stopped making it. I bought the world supply. I bought a freezer and I continued to use it for the next 10 years. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Nowadays, yes, it's very simple. You you photograph a gray card. You, you if you're in the pool, you have your assistant with a pole stick a gray card in the water where the model's going to be, and you mm-hmm. take a picture of the gray card. Yeah, and then in post, you tell the computer what medium gray is. Yeah, match that. Yeah, and generally, it's just a lot of red and some yellow. Yeah. Wow. 
Hey, the film days, nothing like it, right? Do you ever feel yeah. nostalgic for the film days? No. No, me either. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. So um, you've produced five books of these uh, beautiful underwater images. Are you still as passionate about shooting underwater these days? Well, um, there have been now a lot of people shoot underwater, right? Yeah. So I see that. So I'm waiting for somebody to do something I haven't done. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to be uh, a jerk about this or, you know, conceited, but I'm looking for somebody to come up with an idea that I haven't explored hmm. and I haven't seen one yet. I'm sure somebody will. And that may excite me to get back into the pool, but yeah. I'm not going into the pool to shoot for myself anymore. Okay. So um, I noticed in your commercial commissions, when it shows on your website advertising jobs, there have been a number of advertising jobs that saw what you did so well and asked you to do it for them, uh, for the television ad and for many others. Um, but I want to I sort of ask how over the years you've been able to balance the commercial commissions, the things that are the bread and butter of life, but also on creating the art that you want to create for yourself. How do you, yeah. how do you well, balance between the that, two? That's an important question for any photographer who has some artistic desire, some creative desire, some desire to make things that weren't there before that are new. Well, I don't want to do commercial work because commercial work is, I use this as a uh, building a house as a metaphor if you want to build a house, you buy a piece of land, you find an architect, you tell the architect what you want. You want these kind of windows, how many bedrooms, fireplace, what kind of you want. And then the architect does it, and you go back and forth until you agree on what the house is going to be. And then what do you do? You find a contractor who fulfills the dream, who will copy the plans as exact as the architect has made them. And that's what advertising is. The company needs to advertise their new product. They find uh, art directors or advertising agency, and they work together to find a campaign. Often the agency has to go through five or six different groups of committees to come up with all kinds of ideas for them. But they agree on an idea, and then they have the idea. The client, the company, knows exactly what the picture is supposed to look like. And the architect and the art director wants that picture to look exactly like they promised the client. So then they got to find a photographer who is the contractor who will do it exactly like they want. So there is no room for creativity. My creativity in advertising has to do with problem, problem solving in the physical world. I have to figure out how to make something happen to make it look like that. If, if I have a better idea than them, they wouldn't want it anyway. They've already gone through months of negotiation, months of back and forth and agreement and disagreement and multiple people. And they, they, you know, if you go to buy a suit, you want a blue suit, you find the blue suit. The salesman said, you should try the brown suit. <laughs> well, that salesman's out of his mind. Right. And the same through photography. It doesn't require my artistic creativity. It requires my uh, organizational ability, my knowledge and skill in the physical world. 
and my ability to focus and put all of it together just as they want. Hmm. And so I don't want to do advertising. Now, advertising is what allows us to exist. I couldn't just make pictures for me. The museums don't pay very much money. My gallery work sells, but it certainly doesn't really pay for itself. It does okay, and we're happy to get those to, to, to make money from work sold in galleries, but it's, it's not, it's, you know, it's a rare artist that makes a lot of money at their own art. Right. Right. Uh, so we pick and choose the advertising on a few bases. One is fee. Mm-hmm. If, if somebody wants us to do something, um, I implore Beverly to charge as much as she possibly can to get me to do it. Right. And if, if they don't want to pay it, I feel fine. Yeah. I, I, I feel a little sorry. Okay. We lost 10,000 bucks. Yeah. Uh, you know, of course, who wouldn't feel that way, but just as well, uh, because it's sometimes days of planning, days of commitment, days of preparation, and then the shoot, which you, you know, so I charge enough to make it worthwhile. Yep. Yeah, nobody likes to be a starving artist, that's for sure. Right. Right. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna finish today with with uh this thought. And I gotta say, it it would take ten podcast episodes to cover everything I'd like to cover with you, Howard, because there's just so much we could talk about. But I'm gonna finish with this today. You've said that time is a great editor. And during the last few months of the COVID lockdown, you've been combing through your archives, and a recent post you had put up describes how you've revisited images from former shoots and you reworked them more to your satisfaction. And you said that time changes us and your work and I have evolved. Can you share a little bit more about this, this mindset, this exercise? Yeah. There's another little piece of that article that has something to do with having dissatisfaction with repetition of things I've seen before. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I don't want to repeat myself. I, it makes me unhappy. I, I make a great picture, but I made it two years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't want to show anybody. I don't want to talk about it. I don't know why I did it. I wish I could, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm dissatisfied. I, I want to make up stuff that hasn't been in the world before and that I haven't seen before. And um, so that's what keeps me going. Now, it turns out that editing, if you, magazines, if you, if you do a shoot for a magazine, they will do an edit, quick edit, and find the picture they want and publish it. And I can't tell you how many times magazines have missed the best picture. Mm-hmm. Best editor, best photo editors in the world, whose names I won't mention, are friends of mine, have missed the best picture because they have to do it so fast. They're under a deadline and they have to pick something out really fast. The more you look, the more you see, the more you re-see, the more you re-look, the more you revisit, the more you put something away, let it sit, and it's working on your mind and go back to it, the more likely you'll come up with something magic that you didn't see initially. And so 
because I can't shoot, and they haven't been able to shoot since March 9, uh, I've gone back into my files. Now, are there many pictures I've missed? Not many, but there are some. And number two, I've become better at Photoshop. Photoshop's a terrible word. It should be um, complicated, sophisticated, challenging, artistic tool is what it should be. Right. I know how to do things now that I wasn't as capable of before and wasn't aware of as possible before. I'm better at it. And also, you know, I go to museums, at least I used to, and I would take pictures of what's on the wall. And I buy books of artists, and I, and I look at illustrators, and I see things that artists do to pictures and with pictures and of pictures that allows me reference ideas that I can borrow and try for myself. So I feel like I'm better than I was. And using good and older images, I can use the better Howard shots to make these images do something I initially never thought was possible. So mm. that's what that means. The, lo the longer you let something sit and put it away, the more you'll be able to see it for what it really is. You may, you may have done a shoot that you loved and look at it two years later and realize that it was, it was banal. Or you may go back and say, God, I had a cousin. I have a, I have a lot of wonderful cousins. I have a cousin, Dennis. His uh, son had a bar mitzvah. And this was uh, 20 years ago or 18 years ago. And he's moving. And he wrote me a note. He sent me a box. He said, the box was related all of Howard's pictures. At the bar mitzvah, I used a 35-millimeter camera in black and white film and photographed everything about the bar mitzvah. And, of course, I was a relative, so I knew all the uncles and all the aunts and, all the, and everybody. And I knew, I knew things that no photographer could have known. Mm. And I made really wonderful, touching pictures. And I sent him the best pictures. Uh, and he and his wife matted and framed the pictures. They were up in his house. There must have been 30, 40 pictures up in his house all over the years. But they're moving to Florida. So they got to pack everything up. And he told me. And I wrote him back. I said, what pictures? Because I didn't even remember I did that. Right. And so Beverly, this is the other magic of Beverly. There are many magic things I haven't thought of. But Beverly overheard my conversation. Mm -hmm. She went on into our files and she pulled out the contact prints. Like in two, in two minutes, she found the contact prints from uh, 2002. Wow. <laughs> and I looked at the pictures and, you know, there were, there were pictures in there I missed. Wonderful, warm, heartwarming, fun, delicious, touching images that I, as a man... 18 years ago, didn't appreciate the way I do now. Mm. So time is the best editor. Absolutely. Well, time, unfortunately, is, uh, is, <laughs> is marched on for us. And, and I do try to keep the uh, podcasts to about an hour. 
Um, so we've reached that that portion now. And all I can say, Howard, is thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, you've pulled back the curtain on your world for our listeners a little bit today, and um, it just it just makes me want to go and explore your work even more. Um, there's there's so many things that you're doing the the videos the in, the interviews that you do yourself with actors and with notables um, are fascinating to look at and listen to. Um, I just want to wish you and Beverly all the best, and uh, I look forward to seeing what uh, what new work you're going to be able to produce when you can get back to your studio. Well, thanks, Rob. Let me say this. Um, first, I hope we all meet sometime, and for real. If you, come, if, the, if you come to New York, please let us know ahead of time. We'll, we'll break bread. We'll, we'll do something together and try to connect a little better. But I feel, you know, I've been interviewed a lot. I feel like I've never quite experienced someone so well-prepared, uh, mindful, thoughtful, and uh, kind. This has been a great interview, and I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate that so much. Thank you for saying so. Howard, thank you very much. Okay. Bye, Rob. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us on the Photo Pros Podcast. We hope you'll subscribe. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, we'd love for you to leave us a review on iTunes. Again, thanks for listening.